Welcome to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver. In this podcast, you will hear from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with the approved research studies. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com. There you can find the episodes in a more searchable fashion. You can post questions about the various topics, and you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter. Most importantly, if you would like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone you would like to hear from, please email me at grantstuckey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Raza Hussein. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in the Chicago area. Raza, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. Of course, Grant, thanks for having me. And, you know, the I think the last time I was on, maybe a year ago, maybe almost over that, and we were discussing another kind of a non-surgical topic. You get a lot of guys that are uh, way better and well-suited to discuss surgical stuff than than I am. You know, I'm in awe of kind of the the guys that you interview and get to talk to. And, and I think it's an awesome resource for residents and dental students to be able to, you know, hear Dr. Marks and Dr. Bell and, you know, guys like, I mean, I, I call him Tom, but, you know, Dr. Schlevy, you know, and, doc, you know, names like I talk, you know, you see their names in textbooks, but you don't ever get to really hear them until you maybe, you know, when we were residents, when I was a resident, it was, you didn't get to hear them until you actually went and attended one of their lectures. And now to have that huge resource kind of right there, you know, through things that you're doing and, and similar things, but I really feel like you kind of, at least in our specialty, oral and maxillofacial surgery really kind of got things started. And, you know, I saw your, you know, the little A-bombs shout out. I thought that was awesome where they, in, in one of the newsletters, and they talked about the podcast. So I, I thought that was great. So yeah, today, again, it's really a topic. It's nothing clinical. It's nothing surgical. It's more about, you know, I'm 12 years out of residency now. And I'm at, you know, the chief of oral and maxillofacial surgery at the Jesse Brown VA and, and still on staff at UIC, you know, where you trained and where both of us trained kind of just through the, you know, just organically, you know, things happen in those types of roles where if you're around and, you know, hospital leadership sees that you like to hustle and you're a hard worker, they give you opportunities to kind of advance and, you know, kind of on the administrative side of things, your career. So that part of it kind of happened organically. For me, just recently, you know, I found myself in situations where you'd be on a hospital committee and there'd be folks from all different departments, not just the clinical departments, you know, the budget and kind of logistics and and things like that. And, you know, you were learning on the fly and you started to realize why, you know, the decisions these folks made directly affected your ability to provide patient care. And you, you know, sometimes as surgeons, we, you know, we pump ourselves up as uh, if we want something, I should just be able to snap my fingers and get what I need. I need a new piece of equipment. I need new hand pieces for all six operatories. You know, especially when you're working in a big, you know, medical center, you say, oh, there are all these resources and they talk about how they have a $750 million budget and blah, blah, blah. So why can't I snap my fingers and get, you know, 10 new hand pieces? And then when you start seeing the other side of things, and, you know, that's where, you know, the guys that are in private practice, they, you know, probably understand that a little better than somebody like myself who 
primarily as a hospital based academic surgeon or, you know, unless they take that step to kind of dive into that, you know, being on those committees and those leadership roles. So that's where I found that I was lacking, you know, by no means do I think I'm, you know, from a clinical perspective, as my growth stopped, you know, you want to constantly be evolving and be improving as a clinician, but I felt I was really lacking there was in that part of it. So I applied for some leadership training and was fortunate to get accepted. It's sponsored through the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's called Leadership VA. And they basically, you know, they pick somewhere between, you know, 25 and 30 or 40 folks that apply. It's pretty competitive. They usually have three or 400 folks apply and it's across the entire VA Department of Veterans Affairs. So that doesn't just, you know, when people think VA, they think, or at least as a clinician, you think the Veterans Health Administration, you think about the hospitals and the clinics where veterans go to get their health care. But again, this was me not understanding the broader picture of what VA is and realizing there's a Veterans Benefits Association. So all these benefits that, you know, our men and women that have served in the military get after they leave the military, there's an entire huge division of the VA that is responsible for allocating those benefits. And, you know, and these are taxpayer dollars that go towards veterans or benefits. So it's a big deal. The accountability is the utmost uh, priority. And, and then there's the National Cemetery Association, which I never realized was part of the Department of Veterans Affairs, which when a veteran passes away, they're entitled to be buried in a national, you know, a lot of them have benefits to be buried with military uh, honors in a national cemetery. And those are, again, that's another part of the VA that has its own massive budget and known teams and that are responsible for administering all those benefits to veterans. And, you know, the Department of Veterans Affairs, it's got a huge budget. I think it was in excess of $250 billion. So we're talking about a lot of money that goes into the Department of Veterans Affairs. So I felt, oh, well, you know, I'm interested in knowing about kind of how that money gets spread out and who gets what. And so, you know, I applied for the training. I was fortunate enough to be accepted. And and the where they put our teams together is, you know, it wasn't, you know, a bunch of clinicians. They lumped all the clinicians with one another and they lumped all the attorneys with one another and they lumped all the accountants. Actually, I mean, it was the complete opposite. They said, we're going to throw you way out of your comfort zone and we're going to put you, Hussein, we're going to put you in with a bunch of attorneys and accountants okay, that administer all this stuff, you know, and the accountants are probably feeling the same way. Like, you know, who's this guy? I can't even say the name of his specialty or, I mean, that's the first day when we were having our, you know, the first couple of sessions we have are virtual. And then there's a couple of in-person sessions. They're like, oral, what is it? Is that, you know, the guys couldn't, they couldn't say the name of the specialty, you know, oral and maxillofacial surgery. So to uh, be out of your comfort zone, you know, that first is a little bit intimidating. They're talking about budgets and they're talking about resource allocation. You know, you got guys with the official, you know, the they're part of the office of the inspector general. And you're like, holy cow, you know, these are the suits that when they show up, you know, at your facility, you're like, oh man, who's getting let out of here in handcuffs? You know, what happened? You know, who, <laughs> you know, so, but then to realize it's just like that dude is just some dude, just like you and me, who is like, you know, doing his thing and, and going to work and, you know, the daily grind of things. And he's as in the dark about what we do as clinicians and as we are about what they do on a day-to-day. And, you know, when you think of leadership, I feel like you can't really be a leader if you close yourself off 
to folks in those other positions and roles because you know the only way then to lead people is to find some you know familiar ground and then go from there and and then all you know it makes it easier for you to understand their plight and and the difficulties that they face in their roles and their job whatever you know i mean that might be connecting on a personal level maybe they're buying a house and you can connect on that and then you can start branching out about you know the kind of headaches that they deal with at at work so i applied for that and i thought you know, as a specialty, we're really well-suited. Oral and maxillofacial surgeons are really well-suited to be in these types of positions, you know, to be leaders. And, and I, you know, we have plenty, and you've interviewed a boatloads of them on the podcast already that are leaders in the specialty, no doubt, you know, that and leaders in, in healthcare. But to also be leaders now, you know, leaders, I would say, in clinical healthcare, they're the expert in, you know, medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaws. If you want to ask a question about that, endocrinologist, you go to Dr. Robert Marks or Dr. XYZ. But we need to, you know, I feel like, you know, we're so well-suited for it. We're built like we were brainstorming, the, you know, kind of names for, you know, like we're built for it. You know, I, I don't know many specialties in healthcare that reside in every area of healthcare like we do, you know, you know, as oral and maxillofacial surgeons, we know what it means to be a clinic-based specialist. We know what it means to spend time in the emergency room, in the operating room. You know, we know the plight of our anesthesia colleagues and our general surgery colleagues. And then, you know, as the vast majority of our guys are, our private practitioners, they understand leading busy clinics and growing in the business side of things. So I really felt we were well-suited for those roles. And, and unfortunately, maybe because we're just too busy in our day-to-day, -day, a lot of our guys and gals haven't gone that route. Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many good points about leadership and kind of the roles that we can and hopefully will take. Was there good motivating factors for you to kind of get involved in this? Is it helpful in the VA track or is this just create more work for you? Right. I mean, that's a good question. You know, I felt like for me, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, you know, in the VA system, if you're not, you know, that old saying, if you're not at the table, you're on the table. So I felt like if I just allowed folks to tell me, oh, well, you're a doctor, you don't understand these budgetary decisions that are like, you know, I mean, we'll get you the stuff you need, but it's going to have to wait until the next fiscal year, you know. And then, you know, so they throw words around like fiscal year and the funds are going to be swept and the funds were swept. And you're thinking, oh, wow, this sounds like real big budget stuff. You know, I don't know. And then I felt like, you know, I'm getting tired of these guys, you know, keeping me in the dark here. I need to go find out what that means and what. Like, and then you find out there's always money. It doesn't have to be the beginning or the end of a fiscal year. Like there's always money floating around. Yeah. Does it make it a little bit easier? For the accounting guys and the the logistical guys, if it happens on those kind of specific time periods, sure. But if you really need money for clinical stuff, like, you know, one of the perfect examples was, you know, all of a sudden during COVID, the government is pouring hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into COVID funds, special funds for COVID-related medical equipment, safety equipment, all that stuff. So if you could relate the equipment that you needed to buy to COVID in any way, shape, or form, you got it like that, okay? And they were calling and they were, you know, telling department heads, find some way to relate, you know, whatever you need to COVID. And because we got $50 million in COVID funding sitting here, 
And, you know, at the end of the day, anything and everything can be related to COVID, you know, like, hey, we need new suctions, high power suctions for all our operatories. Because you know what, if they're brand new suctions, they suck more aerosol out of the air, that means there's less potential COVID in the air. Boom, there you go. You got all your new equipment. That's all we need to hear. You know, so, and like I said, I feel like we're well suited for that, you know, because, you know, we're in the clinic, we realize, you know, we're doing that, you know, some days I feel like my private practice colleagues, the private practice guys are the best suited for being in hospital leadership. And some of them that do end up going that track, you know, they get recruited into those leadership positions and they do great. They flourish because they ran their own business and they understood what it meant to run a payroll and do HR and, you know, equipment and being efficient with what they had. And that's what, you know, when you're talking about big healthcare, they want to see, you know, being a jack of all trades when you're a leader can be, you know, a good thing. It doesn't take away away from your clinical expertise, obviously ever. You're always going to be an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, but it makes you resilient. It makes you able to adapt because we've been in all those settings, you know? And so I think we're well-suited for it as a specialty to be in those positions, be chiefs of staff, be medical center directors, be, you know, chief medical officers, right? Even though you're, you know, by uh, profession, you're technically a specialty of uh, dentistry, but, you know, there are dental background, we shouldn't shun it away when you're, you know, that's what makes us so kind of precise, right? And kind of analytical, you know, being the dentist part of us, you know, it's just like, and running your own business. You know, I remember when in the VA system, they started talking about RVUs and RVUs for clinical, people didn't know what an RVU was, you know, some of my buddies on the kind of pure general surgery kind of, you know, OR side of things. RVUs, you mean they actually are watching if we're being productive, like tracking our productivity. And I'm like, of course they are. What did you think that they were just going to pay you the six figure salary and let you just bumble around here and do, you know, one, you know, X lap or one hemicolectomy a month and think that was, you know, acceptable? No, you got to justify everything. And, you know, oh, I thought we were just here to take care of patients. So if somebody comes in and of course, yeah, that's what we're there for. But what are you doing with the rest of your free time? You know, are you going in and making sure your budget is balanced and your resources are being utilized responsibly? You know, a good leader, a good, you know, even a clinic leader would do those things. I got some downtime. Let me go and check what I, where I'm at. Oh, shoot. I'm running real close to running out of money for this fiscal year. Where can I kind of trim some fat and move things around so that, you know, I don't run out of money to pay my staff to keep operating? Yeah. I was going to also say it's important to lead in whatever setting you're in. And I think sometimes the hardest setting can be private practice. If you get into this mindset of being a complete businessman and thinking all in dollars and cents, because most of the leadership positions, especially like, let's say your state OMS or your national OMS societies, you're not going to get much money at all. And it's just going to be take time. And so you're like, oh, why the heck would I ever do that? You know, so I've had to kind of every opportunity I, I can get involved in leadership and sitting in on the discussions that the quote unquote suits have the businessmen, because it's just they're always going to make the decision with the dollar and cents, right? They're never going to make it for the patient and for the doctor. So we got to do what we can. Yeah. And that's where like when you sit with this, you know, we make them into, you know, we make them into the evil empire, you know, but when you sit in a room with them, then you really start to realize that they just flat out don't know. They don't know. So unless you're there with them and they see, oh, well, Dr. Stuckey asked for, you know, he needs 
two more boxes of propofol and that stuff's on back order and we can get it, but they're asking five times what we paid for it a year ago. Oh, but hey, there's this version of it from overseas. I'm not going to name any particular countries because I'm not trying to get in trouble here, but that's way cheaper. What do you know? It's the exact same drug, right? I mean, this one's propofol. It looks like milk. That one says propofol looks like milk too. Let's just buy that one. Dr. Stuckey is the one who's going to say, hey, I don't want to administer propofol that gets shipped in a non-refrigerated, non-temperature controlled, you know, from some exotic country in some weird location manufactured in what circumstances and what sterile, you know, processing unit to my patients. And when you say that and make it a safety, they say, we get it, Dr. Stupi, we understand. Okay. So we'll pay the price. You know, do you think we might be able to increase our costs, you know, 3% patient costs, 3%, you know, that's where then you got to also meet them halfway. You might have to say, well, you know, the patients are going to look at their treatment plan. Why is it so much more expensive? But when you explain to them, well, I could be giving you propofol from nameless third world country manufactured by nameless individual in their basement, or I could be giving you the stuff that, you know, comes from this fancy where they have to follow all FDA and blah, blah, blah protocols in terms of their quality. So you let me know if you want to, you know, and in today's day and age where everything's more expensive and inflation is, you know, I mean, if you're paying $7 a gallon for gasoline, why don't you think you'd have to pay a little bit more for your healthcare too? I mean, that's the reality of the world that we live in today. So when you realize that, I mean, why are you willing to pay $7 a gallon for gasoline or, you know, almost twice the MSRP on a new, you know, Ford pickup that you want to buy, but you won't do your own healthcare or your child's healthcare, that same justice, right? And say, oh, well, I get it. You know, in order to provide safe medical care, costs have gone up. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I like that you bring up that point that we need to educate people. Yeah. Yeah. And you can only do that from the inside, you know, and you can only really advocate from the inside. And I'm talking about advocate, you know, now I'm uh, once again, speaking kind of selfishly as an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, uh, advocate for our specialty from the inside. You know, there's places where they still don't realize that, hey, man, you guys go through a lot of training and you, you guys do head and neck. And then, you know, our head and neck surgeon now, he's flapping for the ENT guys at one of our, you know, one of the centers that we cover a call. So once you get in there and you start operating with them and then you realize, wow, these guys, do, they know what they're doing. They do a good job. Now I'm talking about it clinically, but once you do it on the leadership side and the administrative side too, you know, then you're setting the groundwork for other surgeon leaders and they say, oh yeah, you know, there was this guy, OMS guy, you know, Grant Stuckey who came in, you know, and it like you're talking about, you know, you know, leadership through your podcast, but you know, if you're on staff at even your local community hospital. I can tell you people do not line up and beat the door down to be on these hospital committees. They don't. They're not like, yes, I want to be on the bone graft and tissue committee, right? They got all these committees, right? They don't want, nobody wants bone graft and tissue committee. Like this is one of the ones that we got, got out here. But who's better suited to be on the bone graft and tissue committee than one of our guys and then our gals, you know? We use the stuff every day, you know? And when, that's when they'll ask, like, hey, Dr. Stuckey, you guys use this stuff podiatry is asking for this stuff or neurospine is asking for this stuff it's super expensive you know is there any reason that this stuff is so expensive is there any alternative to this i use this and this and this i'd be interested to see why the neurosurgeons 
have to use this particular product when, yeah, I've used that product. It's pretty good, but it's super expensive, like you said. But in my private office, I switch to this product. I get the same outcomes, you know, maybe when they're doing a fusion, you know, they want a multi-level fusion, then they got to use a specific grafting material Oh, it's the only, or the specific cement. It's the only one I'll use. Then you ask them, but hey, why is it the only one you use? Is it something about like it being in contact with the spinal cord or, well, that's what I trained with. Well, that's not a real reason. If it was something clinical, like, hey, there's studies that show that the stuff you're talking about that, yeah, it's a, it's a little cheaper. It causes inflammation around the spinal cord. I don't want inflammation around my patient's spinal cords. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Get them the expensive stuff. But if it's, oh, I just trained with then as a, one clinician to another, you can say, hey, man, I used to use that more expensive stuff. I switched to this and I get the same quality of bone and it saves me a boatload of money. And I've been using it for 10 years, haven't had any issues. And they said, hey, you know what? And you explain it to them that, hey, and by doing that, you know, that new whatever nav unit or that new whatever ultrasonic XYZ BS, whatever you <laughs> want to, to buy next year, we'll probably be able to get that for you because we're going to save, you know, 300K because you guys use so much of this darn bone. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Demand. That sounds good. You know, just a few weeks ago, they said, don't forget about it. They, we're never going to be able to buy that thing for you. Yeah. That's a good point. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think you've brought up a, a lot of good points. Get involved in leadership, educate those around us, you know, take time. Getting involved in our specialties leadership, that's great. You know, that is where we all, you know, then you're amongst family, right? What we need to do is branch out, get out of a little bit out of our comfort zone and start being leaders in the more global scene of healthcare, you know, because like I said, we're, we're well suited for it. And though that can be at your local community hospital, that can be in your, like you said, your dental societies, you know, again, in dentistry, why are oral and maxillofacial surgeons so poorly represented. I mean, why are we, you know, not on a lot of these dental boards, state dental boards and things like that? I mean, to my knowledge, we're not, you know, you know, there's some state dental boards where dental hygienists are the presidents of the dental board. Well, you know, then you don't think they're going to, when they get into those positions, they're not going to look out for the best interest of other hygienists, you know? I mean, you know, I was just making this analogy the other day to the residents, you know, to our residents here at UIC. I said, we're like the Jedi Knights of dentistry, right? Already. You know, like people are kind of like this max, you know, the OMS guys are kind of arrogant and they usually hang out in their little end of the, you know, in the dental school, they got their own clinic and they're just there and they're in their resident room and they got their, they got their scrubs on. They're always talking about how we got to go to the hospital. We got to go to the hospital. I got to go see this trauma patient. I got to go to the emergency room. And they're just like, oh, high and mighty and they're Mount Olympus, you know, and then, but when. You know, and just kind of like the Jedi Knights, right? They're in the Jedi Temple and they're just kind of there and everybody's kind of hating on them, you know, because they got all the special powers and they got the force and, you know, they got their lightsabers. But when it's hitting the fan, whose door does everybody go knocking on, right? We're the Jedi Knights. Somebody go find Yoda. Somebody go find Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's going down. Luke Skywalker, for God's sakes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so that's where they come knocking on our door. You know, you remember at UIC, we were the code team for the dental school. God, God, call the OMFS guys. And, you know, then you come up there and you, you know, you wave your lightsaber around and you save the day, you know, and you just kind of, you know, you saunter away with that quiet 
confidence, that quiet arrogance, and you saunter away and you go back to the Jedi Temple until the next time things go down. And then, you know, they completely forget about you saving their butts that time and that arrogant surgeons there in there. So, you know, but if you're in there with them and then you realize and they start to realize, oh, these guys really are good at leading. You know, they've been through a lot through their training and they have to deal with a lot of stressful situations. And then when you get into those positions, you can't just you can't play favorites. You certainly can't do that because then you're not going to, you know, the masses will not continue to allow you to be in those positions. Then you have to, you know, you have to represent the interests of, of everyone. And then that sometimes will put you in the difficult position of occasionally having to tell your colleagues, your brothers in arms, your fellow oral and maxillofacial surgeons, Hey man, the general dentistry guys, their clinic is 50 years old and you guys, your clinic is 15 years old. We got to build them a new clinic, you know? And yeah, yeah, they'll be a little perturbed at you for a little bit, but then they'll realize it. And then they'll, maybe they'll realize the part like, Hey, if they have a nicer clinic, they can generate more patients and that's more patients for them to refer to us. Oh, see, there's always a side to it that you don't realize until you're in there and you're the one at the table helping make the decisions and guiding the things. And I was guilty of it too, you know, in, you know, in my little clinic, in my little corner of the, you know, my medical center, just saying, well, we are the most important part. You know, when the things go down, that's when, why shouldn't I get everything I need right away? And then when you go, and then a lot of times you can be that abrasive guy that can, and you'll use the science and you'll use your brains and you're to, to kind of get what you need. But then you're also at the same time burning bridges and upsetting people. So that's where then I feel like the leadership training really does come in handy because then you have people that have those backgrounds that can tell you, hey, sometimes you got to, you know, you might have to take the hit on this one for the greater good and see the bigger picture here. You know, think more long term, you know, think more five, eight, 10 years down the line than just I need this now. And, you know, a lot of times, especially the way our surgeon minds think, we're just thinking that way, you know. We need this now right away because I, you know, and you're right. Like, you know, I do think private practice uh, guys are better, you know, a lot of times are well suited for that. And just the day to day of running their busy practices kind of robs us, you know, robs healthcare of the private practice oral and maxillofacial surgeon because they're just so busy, you know, in patient care and then in all the headaches that come along with running a business and managing people, you know, you're managing people too, as a private practitioner, you're not just, you know, going in and, you know, you're having to manage your, you're actively manage your team every day, you know, if you want that team to be good and functional and work for you. So that's a lot of work. And then, you know, that's why then after you do that for 30, 35 years, you're just tired and you're just like, "Ah, I would like to, you know, you'd probably, that's probably the prime time to grab somebody to go into leadership in a big healthcare setting when you've done that for 30, 35 years. You've seen and done everything. But at that stage, you're just like, uh-uh, I'm tired, man. <laughs> I'm done. So you're right. You know, we need some people to make that, maybe make that sacrifice early on. I wish I would have started 10 years ago with the leadership, you know, formal leadership training, not, you know, but, you know, at that time, you're busy trying to keep your head above water, just training residents and being considered a capable clinician and and just managing your little clinic, your little team. But then you start thinking bigger picture and and the benefits that it'll have for the specialty long term, you know, by getting our guys and gals into those positions of leadership and making them the shot callers, then you realize, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, some of us are gonna need to go this route. Oh, for sure. Well, I'm glad you've been able to make a difference in your setting and kind of share some of the ways you've been able to get there. 
if there are listeners who have you know further questions or kind of more intrigued about this pathway, are you open to discussing things with them? Yeah, of course. I'm always, I mean, I think that's the way that we, you know, I had great mentorship, you know, our chairman, Dr. Michael Maloro was a great mentor and continues to be a great mentor and resource to me. And not just that, you know, obviously as a clinical leader and champion, but just, you know, as I progressed through my stages in my career, but, you know, I've been fortunate to cross paths with a lot of folks and I've, you know, been fortunate to, you know, guys and gals, you know, we trained with that have gone down the path of leadership and are becoming awesome and impressive leaders in their own right. Look at, you know, Tom, you know, I think that's awesome. Tom Schlevy. You know, when I talk to him, when I catch up with him, and I wish it were more frequently, you know, some of the headaches and, you know, some of the road bumps that not every person's leadership journey takes a different path. And if there's somebody that just sended quickly with no hurdles and no bumps in the road, I don't know if that's somebody that I want leading me. I want somebody that had a pretty rough path and made it to the top because I know that guy or gal has seen a lot, you know? So then when you start talking to your fellow colleagues that have kind of are going down that path and have had some of their own heartbreak and, and have applied for certain positions and have been, you know, maybe not rejected, that's a harsh word, but to say, you know, they didn't get the position that they were applying for, even though they thought, Hey, I'm a shoe in. You realize that those things, they, they make you a better leader because then you realize, okay, that's just going to give me more opportunity here to refine myself. And you can't, you know, I don't think there's any good leaders out there that haven't in- encountered that type of turbulence. You know, the ones that ultimately make it to the upper echelon and kind of those higher positions, that didn't happen. They're like, oh, I applied for every position I applied for, I got. You know, no, no, I guarantee you that, you know, they got knocked around quite a bit to get up there and they're continuing to get knocked around and the battle never ends, you know, really. It's ongoing and continuous, but then you just become, you become more and more resilient and more and more built for it. And then you kind of relish the opportunity, the next challenge, you know, and at the same time, always keeping in mind why we're doing this, you know, that we're at our heart, we're clinicians. And ultimately, it's, you know, the ultimate goal is we have to be the biggest population that we're advocating for are our patients, you know, at the end of the day, what it's all about. So that has to be the ultimate goal, not being in the big office, corner office with all the windows. It's like, hey, I got to this position. And now because, you know, I can really exert now influence for my grand scheme. It's not some grand evil scheme to take over the universe, right? It's to be able to provide better patient care, better access to patient care. And not just for our subset of patients now, you see, it's not just for oral and maxillofacial surgery patients. That we could probably do pretty well. A lot of us do it, right? You do it when, as a private practitioner, you open more offices. You know, I mean, we were just talking about, you know, potentially you joining with one of our other former residents and opening a few more offices. You're going to do that right then and there. You're going to provide access to more patients, provide your services, our services, which are desperately needed to more people. So you're already doing a great thing. You know, you're already being a leader right there. But now imagine being able to do that for every specialty across healthcare because of things that you did and changes you brought and all that. That'd be awesome. Why, you know, who wouldn't want to do that, right? And I mean, those are lofty goals, right? But shouldn't we all have lofty goals? Oh, for sure. I think we all need to do the best that we can to lead and to help out. And we've got so much skill, so much education, it just suits us well, like you said. Well, good. I appreciate you taking the time and running through this. 
Yeah, of course, Grant. Like you asked if it's okay for folks to reach out, by all means. I don't know if my email's in there or, you know, in the button, but they can reach out via, you know, to you and you can put them in touch with me and, you know, I'll be at Amos this year. So if there's residents walking around and a lot of these, you know, you cross paths. And I think that's where your platform has been so awesome. I look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. It's been a while. All right. Well, say hi to your family for me. Good talking to you. I will. You too, Grant. Yep. Have a good one. Good. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I would love it if you would also connect with us on Instagram and Facebook through our Everyday Oral Surgery pages. Also, if you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or you can text or call me at 720-441-6059. If you have any topics you'd like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, also please call or email me. I've found many of our interviewees through people contacting me after listening And for that, I am supremely grateful. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.